Today's Bible reading is uh, Philippians chapter 1, verses 12 to 30. Um, it'll be on my head, over my head on the screen. And Ruth will be pleased to know that it's on page 1823 of the Church Bibles. <clears throat> now I want you to know, brothers and sisters, that what has happened to me has actually served to advance the gospel. As a result, it became clear throughout the whole palace guard and to everyone else that I am in chains for Christ. And because of my chains, most of the brothers and sisters have become confident in the Lord and dare all the more to proclaim the gospel without fear. It is true that some preach Christ out of envy and rivalry, but others out of goodwill. The latter do so out of love, knowing that I am put here for the defence of the gospel. The former preach Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely supposing that they can stir up trouble for me while I am in chains. But what does it matter? The important thing is that in every way, whether from false motives or true, Christ is preached. And because of this, I rejoice. Yes, and I will continue to rejoice, for I know that through your prayers and God's provision of the Spirit of Jesus Christ that has happened to me, sorry, what has happened to me will turn out for my deliverance. I eagerly expect and hope that I will in no way be ashamed, but will have sufficient courage so, as, so that now, as always, Christ will be exalted in my body, whether by life or by death. For to me, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. If I am to go on living in the body, this will mean fruitful labour for me. Yet what shall I choose? I do not know. I am torn between the two. I desire to depart and be with Christ, which is better by far, but it is more necessary for you that I remain in the body. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and I will continue with all of you for your progress and joy in the faith, so that through my being with you again, your boasting in Christ Jesus will abound on account of me. Whatever happens, conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. Then, when I come and see you, or only hear about you in my absence, I will know that you stand firm in the one spirit, striving together as one for the faith of the gospel without being frightened in any way by those who oppose you. This is a sign to them that they will be destroyed but that you will be saved and that by God. For it has been granted to you on behalf of Christ not, to be, not only to believe in him but also to suffer for him since you are going through the same struggle you saw I had and now here that I still have. Well, hello again. I mentioned uh, earlier that um, I worked for many years as a research scientist. I don't know if I said it, most of that was at CSIRO. Um, but there was this something I didn't tell you. I was interested in science from a young age. Um, but I'm not sure which was the chicken and which was the egg when I tell you also that I was an avid reader of science fiction. Not sure whether science fiction interested me in science or science in science fiction. Anyway, first of all, I was interested in, in the comic books. Dan Dare and the Eagle comic was my favourite. Uh, later, I graduated to books without pictures. 
Um, actually, it was a casual mention of uh, random numbers in a science fiction novella that uh, gave me my interest in, in probability and statistics, which is where I ended up spending um, most of my time researching. So I want to tell you this morning about a story, a science fiction story, called Red Alert by one of my favorite authors, who you've probably never heard of, called James White. Um, can we have a picture? Here's a picture. Next one. Yeah, that's, uh, that's a picture of the book that the, the, uh, the story came out of, and I think you'd better take it off now before we all get bad dreams. Um, one, one of the reasons I like James White's stories is that the main characters were always likable personalities, the sort of person you'd like to be. There are astronauts who are courageous even when they're terrified. There are doctors who heal impossible injuries and diseases, and they stop interstellar wars while being nice to everyone and very modest about their achievements, and of course, always have happy endings. But this story, Red Alert, seems different. The main character is Commander Evera de Krenolin Sue, who is the leader of an armada of alien spaceships bearing down on Earth. The story was written in the Cold War period, so Earth consists of many rival countries in a state of nuclear armed tension and their missiles would be able to hit targets in space. Everest sees the danger of major casualties, and as a result, um, being highly intelligent, he has devised a cunning plan. Using his advanced technology, including mind control, he increases the level of tension among the Earthlings. They move to higher and higher states of readiness until they're at the point of total nuclear war amongst themselves, disaster seems imminent. But then, everything turns upside down. We find out that the Armada consists not of warships, but rather of transport ships, come to save the Earth population from the sun, which is about to explode into a nova and completely destroy our planet. Everest's plan mobilized Earth's resources, not for war, but to aid the evacuation, which proceeds with almost total success. Oh, we breathe a sigh of relief. Everett de Krenlin Sue is a nice guy after all. We had it wrong, and the revelation turns it all upside down. And upside down is where we seem to be in today's passage. This week and next, we're looking at Paul's letter to the Christians at Philippi. Various things are not quite as we might expect. It'll be helpful before I get into that to look at a bit of the background. You may know that much of Paul's early ministry took place in what today is the country of Turkey. Philippi, however, was a city in Greece, the region then called Macedonia. Can we have the, the map on the screen? That's the one. Um, so this is Paul's second journey, which is when he was called to Macedonia. On your right is modern-day Turkey, and on the left, Macedonia and Achaia, which is modern-day Greece. Philippi there had a status of a Roman colony, and that gave it a privileged position. It was equivalent to being a city on Italian soil. Many veterans of the Roman army had been granted land there, and the Roman influence was very strong, including an emphasis on the worship of the emperor. We read of Paul's visits to Philippi in Acts 16. We won't look at it all today, but as a quick summary, his ministry there initially had great success, though he eventually encountered opposition and was imprisoned there with Silas, leading him to live, leave Philippi move on to Thessalonica and eventually to Athens. You may recall uh, in Acts 
17, verse 6, when Paul and Silas were in Thessalonica, the Christians were called those who have turned the world upside down. So maybe Paul's letter, words in this letter indicate how he was turning things upside down. See, you might, for example, expect that Paul would have dark memories of his imprisonment in Philippi. Indeed, in his first letter to, the Thessal to Thessalonica, he writes that he had suffered and been shamefully treated in Philippi. But no, when he's writing to the Philippians, it's upside down. The letter makes it clear that Paul actually has a soft spot for Philippi. Right at the start in Philippians 1.3, he writes, I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, recalling they've been partners from the beginning. Now, however, his position again seems difficult. He's writing to them from prison, perhaps in Rome, which, given the reference to the Praetorian Guard in verse 13, seems quite likely. I can take the picture off now, thanks. Um, so, uh, let's have a look at today's passage. Could you open your Bibles, please, to Philippians chapter 1 and verse 12. The start of the verse there starts, talks about what has happened to me. This may refer to Paul being imprisoned, though if we read about his trip to Rome in the, in the last few chapters of Acts, we don't have time to look at it today, but in that account you see there was a lot more to the story, including assassination attempts and a shipwreck. So once again, we might expect Paul to complain about what has happened to him. But no, he turns it upside down. What has happened has served to advance the gospel. How on earth could that be? Well, Paul gives us two reasons. First of all, he had a chance to talk to his guards. Look at verse 13. It has become known throughout the Imperial Guard. If Paul were free, he could have walked up to the gate of the Imperial Garrison and knocked on and said, uh, can I tell you about Jesus, please? Unfortunately, if he'd done that, he'd have had little chance of being admitted. More likely, he would have been laughed at and sent packing. As it was, having come the long way round, he's become known throughout the Imperial Guard as an apostle of Christ. That's the first reason. The second reason Paul gives us also seems a bit upside down. His imprisonment is encouraging the other Christians. Look at verse 14. Most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. What was that again? Seeing me imprisoned has called the brothers to go into hiding. Uh, no, not at all. It's upside down. The brothers are much more bold to speak the word. Curiouser and curiouser. Paul goes on to say that some of those who are speaking out in Rome are not doing so sincerely, but out of envy and rivalry. Envy and rivalry. These are terms that Paul regularly uses in lists of sins in his letters. For example, in Galatians 5.20, there's some of the works of the flesh opposed to the fruit of the Spirit in verses 22 and 23. So we might expect Paul to lament that the gospel was being proclaimed insincerely for the sake of selfish ambition, according to verse 17. But no, it's even okay for the gospel to be proclaimed out of selfish ambition. Oh, it's upside down. Yeah, look at verse 18. As long as Christ is proclaimed, Paul will rejoice. As a slight digression, it seemed likely that the gospel these people were proclaiming was the true gospel, even though they were insincere in their motives. 
Um, Paul's rightly critical of other letters of those who, in other letters of those who preach a false gospel, but that seems not to be the case here. But Paul still is rejoicing at these seeming problems. Verse 19, he remains confident that things will turn out for his deliverance. Does this mean he's expecting to be released? No. In verse 20, he's confident that Christ will be honored by his life or by his death. No wonder people thought he was turning the world upside down. But actually, was he? Let's look back to my science fiction story that its hero, Everett Crenolin Sue. We'd been led to think that he was an invader, but he turned out to be a savior. But actually, that was always in t- intention. It wasn't the event that was turned upside down, but our understanding of what was happening. Everett Crenolin Sue already had things the right way up. And so did Paul. Remember that those who claimed he had turned the world upside down were the enemies of the gospel. What he was really doing was turning things the right way up. He saw that the important thing was that the gospel was proclaimed. He was confident that God was in control and that whatever happened would lead to the proclamation of the gospel. The imperial guard heard the gospel proclaimed. The Christians in Rome had seen his courage in his imprisonment and have been emboldened to proclaim the gospel. Even those who were envious of him and sought to cause him problems served to spread the gospel. God was using Paul's situation to turn things the right way up. So what did this mean for Paul and for the Christians in Philippi? In an upside upside down world, Paul would be eager for release, but he sees things the right way up. In verse 23, he tells them that to depart and be with Christ is far better, but then acknowledges in verse 24, it will be better for others for him to remain, so that he expects this will be the case. So he encourages the Philippians, like the Christians in Rome, to be emboldened by his example and to see the world the right way up. In verse 27, he writes, Let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. He hopes they will avoid the factions that they've uh, seen in Rome and that will be striving together with one mind. He encourages them to be unafraid of opponents, gladly accepting suffering, as Paul has in Philippi and now in Rome, accepting suffering for the sake of Christ, seeing things the right way up. Now, of course, Paul wasn't the first to point out that the world has things upside down. The last shall be first and the first last, are Jesus' word in Matthew 19.30. And the need to turn things upside down echoes through all of Jesus' teaching. Let the children come to me, for such is the kingdom of heaven. It is hard for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are the poor. All upside down. Even his disciples, especially Peter, thought Jesus had things upside down. In Matthew 16, 21 to 23, we read that Jesus was telling them how he would suffer and be killed. Peter told them he was wrong. It couldn't possibly happen. But Jesus told them he had to see things the right way up. Peter's mind was set on the things of man. He had to set his mind on things of God the right way up. There seem to be a few sermons here lately about seeing things the right way up. Carl's sermons on Esther last month 
King Xerxes and his chief minister, Haman, thought they were in control. Haman was planning to massacre all the Jews throughout the, the empire and establish his own power. But he and King Xerxes had it upside down. They were the ones under God's control through seemingly unconnected coincidences. I wonder if there's a reason for this message to have been repeated. I'm pretty sure it wasn't Carl's plan and it wasn't mine. Do we have a need for a reminder to see things the right way up when the world seems upside down? To remember that God is in control. You may remember from Carl's sermons that Haman believed he had control and everything revolved around him. He found out very painfully his mistake. Paul reminds the Philippians that things that seem wrong can be part of God's plan for spreading the gospel. If we look at the world from our individual point of view, as Haman did, then problems may look insurmountable and unacceptable. COVID has upset our plans for travel, for meetings, for celebrations. The world's situation is dire with wars in many places and world powers taking increasingly threatening postures. Our current culture is telling us we have things upside down in our attitudes to sexuality and respect for life. So far, we as Christians in Australia are free from overt persecution and in the main we're insulated from the direct impact of war and terrorism. But we have no guarantee this situation will last forever. Looking at the world from our individual perspective, it may seem that God's plan is failing, but God is always the right way up. What does Paul tell the Philippians about how they are to live? Look at verses 25 through to 30. Paul believes he will be freed and able to visit Philippi once again, and he'll be able to support and encourage them in progress and joy in the faith so that they will be able to celebrate his return, giving all the credit and thanks to Jesus. But in verse 27, he sounds a note of caution. Whatever happens, regardless of what may happen to him, they are to conduct themselves in a manner worthy of Christ. And what will this look like? Well, first of all, they will stand firm in their faith. But notice they aren't standing as individuals. Rather, they are to stand firm in one spirit and contend for the faith of the gospel with one mind. The Greek word is atleo, from which we get the word athletics. The image is one of a well-trained team working together for a goal. This is about a bit countercultural today. We're told to look after number one, to be ourselves, to achieve self-actualization. Paul is telling the Philippians that they are to be a one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel. It's tempting for us to see faith as an individual matter. Our individual relationship with Jesus is what counts. Fellowship with other Christians is nice, but it's an optional extra. Just what today's culture would have us believe. Paul turns this upside down. Well, the right way up. He emphasizes the need for us to be together, worshiping together, learning together, and striving together for the gospel of Christ. He has seen the power of community, people worshiping together, hearing the gospel, encouraged by each other's stories, feeling the security of a community of faith. He knows that being supported by such a community strengthens us so we don't need to look in fear at opposition. But like Paul and the Philippian Christians, we can feel secure. And a quick plug for next week. We'll be following up on that idea in next week's sermon.
Today, we probably don't face the danger of imprisonment or death as Paul did. But in today's secular and allegedly tolerant culture, we can face ridicule, prejudice, and rejection. We don't need to fear such things. That doesn't mean they're not real. Look at the last two verses of the chapter, 29 and 30. It has been granted to you to suffer. Granted. Given as a gift. Such suffering isn't something to be feared. That's looking at it upside down. Paul has it the right way up. It's rather a sign that we are engaged in the same struggle that Paul had. And we can have the same confidence that he had. Where did Paul get his confidence? And how can we maintain our confidence in a culture where God is increasingly ignored? How can we keep seeing things the right way up? Paul tells us in verse 19 of our reading today, through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Christ, we can look for support through our Christian community here at Trinity Church Emily and beyond. But even more, we have God's help. Let's think of that science fiction story again. I may be stretching the analogy a little bit, but if when I first read it, I thought about who was the author, James White, and remembered what his heroes are like, then I might have thought a bit more before judging ever after Colonel N. Sue. When we look at our world and the pressure to conform to its values, when things look black, when we look around and we feel imprisoned by our situation or alone, we need to remember who is the author of our story the all-powerful creator of our universe, the one who loved us enough to die for us and who has all things, all things under his control. Let's pray together. Father God, thank you for Paul's letters that have been preserved for so long so that they continue to build up your church. Fill us with your spirit so we can see things the right way up, however much the world may try to distort the picture. In trouble, in doubt, in persecution, enable us to have confidence that you are in control, all-powerful, loving, and merciful. May we always seek to make you known, giving you glory. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.